Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today I'm happy to bring you my conversations with the founders of a relatively new firm called Hannah Gray. The firm recently closed an oversubscribed fund one, and Jessica and Kate and I had an amazing conversation about how they planned for the firm, their experience with their first fundraise, which was done during COVID, and how they fostered an incredible community of female investors. For emerging managers, this is a really special episode filled with great nuggets of wisdom on fundraising. I really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Jessica and Kate, it's so great to have you on the show. I've been excited about this one for a while. Us too. Thank you so much for having us. So first of all, congrats on the oversubscribed fund one. I I know that that was quite the journey that you went through. And we'll we'll get to the fundraising journey in a second. But before that, both of you have very unique backgrounds, and, and Jessica, you, you know, you were at a CVC. Kate, you've worked at another fund before. One of the most interesting things is how do how do firms get created? I've said this on the pod before. It's almost like looking at a a blank sheet of paper or looking at a whiteboard and really deciding why do we want to create a firm? What is the ethos of that firm? And then more importantly, as partners, how do you come together? So maybe you can talk a little bit about the origin story of Hannah Gray. So I think this the origin story starts uh, obviously uniquely with our own individual backgrounds, um, but then we came together quite a while ago, and I think almost initially on first meeting had this sort of meet cute where we were like, oh, I found my person. That has just kind of stuck with me, and you know I think Jessica feels the same way for the whole time. So I think this was just we knew we were going to build a fund together. It was just a matter of time and when the timing worked. So really quick on my background, I have always been right next to the entrepreneur. Um, Early in my career, I was chief of staff to Martha Stewart, who is just an incredible human being and creator. Um, You know, she's dropping NFTs right now at 80. It's just it's it's just fascinating to watch her uh, evolution of her and her brand. Uh, Then got to move over to the Huffington Post as an early employee, I think round number 20 which was just an incredible time to be in New York City working on a new startup because New York wasn't yet a tech hub. This was uh, late 2008, sorry, early 2008. And that also was in a similar position for Ken Lear, who was uh, the chairman of the Huffington Post. And so right next to the entrepreneur again, he was an incredible visionary. Um, And again, market timing is like one of his (laughs) best, best skills. And um, that evolved into being the first founding member of Lear Hippo uh, in January 2010, which is now a prolific fund, early stage fund focusing on uh, early stage technology, uh, largely in New York, but across the country. And so I was fortunate to be a part of their team and build that firm from the ground up and did three funds with them and invested in almost 200 companies at an incredible rate. And again, really being at the forefront of New York technology and ecosystem taking shape. Left there to go join Galvanize Ventures, which is uh, looks like a WeWork meets General Assembly with a venture fund. And that's when I met Jessica in 2014. And we were investing across the country, still in early stage technologies, but a larger aperture of where we could find them. So markets all over the country. And I started my career on the customer side uh, at a global media, media agency here in New York in 2003. Spent 10 years working with Fortune 500 brands. Gucci, Puma, 20th Century Fox, H&M, Verizon, and was really fortunate that I was running Verizon's media strategy from 2009 to 2012, which just gave me a front row seat in terms of the way consumer behavior was changing more towards mobile adoption and the creativity that was happening in the app store. And 
that got me interested in mobile and emerging technology. Um, started working with early stage founders here in New York uh, around 2010, 2011, and just fell in love with the space and the energy and very quickly realized that leaning into my background as a marketer was really helpful to these founders that were more product and engineers, usually guys, and they didn't know how to find their first customers. They didn't know how to build a brand or how to build community or do content or media strategy. So I left corporate uh, in 2012 to go to a startup myself, one of the first innovation boutiques that specialized in helping startups find their first customers, but really helping big brands learn how to commercialize emerging technology. Did some of the industry's first influencer marketing campaigns, mobile wallet campaigns, and then um, shifted over to corporate venture capital in 2014, uh, which is where I met Kate. And as soon as I met Kate, I, we just immediately hit it off as fast friends, um, similar life stage. And so I was I was pretty dropped into the deep end of venture capital back then. Um, so everything I learned was really listen to a podcast, read a blog, or call Kate, who was very generous <laughs> with her time and acumen um, to really show me the ropes. And so that turned into us doing monthly deal flow calls together, which turned into us doing two co-investments together, which turned into, in, in 2017, actually, we, we talked about me joining her previous firm, Upslope, for fun too. But Kate and I just had, a, we had a really honest conversation where I was like, Kate, of course I want to come do this with you, but let's just be honest. We, we are going to be employees of someone else's firm who have all the upside. And so if we're going to do this, we need to do it our way and own it 50-50 and really be thoughtful about the brand and the franchise that we want to build in the coming decade. And so I, I think we kind of started plotting then a little bit and, and it was more of a, a when, not an if we were going to start something together. And fast forward to fall 2020 is when I left my corporate VC. And part of that was also just spending a lot more time together and making sure that the partnership was the right fit. Um, she stayed at my apartment in New York. I've stayed at her her house in Denver. Our families have spent time on Fisher's Island together and really just thinking through what have we learned working with hundreds of early stage founders for over a decade to really be thoughtful across our learnings of five funds about what is a progressive way to manage a portfolio, to create value to founders, and also build a brand that's really differentiated and unique in an increasingly crowded landscape. So Hannah Gray is actually named after our oldest daughters. My daughter is Rhea Hannah, Kate's daughter is Gunnison Gray. And so it, there's a lot of different layers around our brand. Obviously, it's something we like to help founders with a lot, but it's just a reminder that we're we're here to create generational wealth for our LPs, for our founders, for their teams, for ourselves, but also just recognizing that we're role models to people everywhere that this is the modern woman. You can have a family and balance a career and that just needs to be celebrated. And so we love the fact that venture is such a human business. It's it's something that I think is just in Kate and I's DNA is We've had founders get married, founders get divorced, founders have kids, founders have a parent pass away, and you need to be able to connect with your investor as an authentic partner through throughout the entire journey of your fund. And that's something that we we love to do with our founders. And so we we wanted that to be reflective of our brand and how we really think about those relationships in the firm we're looking to build. It's a fantastic story, and it does highlight how much thought you put behind something as critical as partnership dynamics. And of course, we all know that 
in a venture firm that could last 20, 30 years, you have to ensure compatibility on pretty much every dimension, including thinking about the type of product that you're offering founders. Maybe you can touch on the initial discussions you had at the beginning of Hannah Gray on what type of product you wanted to offer founders and how it was going to differentiate from some of the other firms out there. Absolutely. So we thought long and hard, of course, because I I think one of our LPs calls us relentlessly thoughtful, which is a compliment we will take. Um, We we thought long and hard about ultimately the the product we wanted to market and where we felt like we could contribute to the venture ecosystem and what we felt like was missing um, either for new entrepreneurs first time or repeat entrepreneurs, how we would do things differently than, you know, we had the, uh, I would say the vantage to look back at multiple funds and over a decade of experience and say, here's things we would, you know, just had this uh, phrase all the time. Well, we have our fund, we're going to do it this way. You know, and so I think we've just <laughs> been kind of collecting those data points. But I think we looked at a number of forcing functions. We looked at macro trends. We looked at timing, right? You know, being able to say, go back in in our investments and say what worked and what didn't. Oftentimes it was market timing. It was great team, great product, just, you know, not the right time to launch the product. And so being able to look at those underlying macro and micro forcing functions to understand how you can actually be the, you know, deliver your product to the market the best time. And, and also, is this the best time for us to be backing your business? Um, so I think we can also admit that we we took a lot of, I would say, pointers from funds that were established, things we loved, things that we thought could be improved upon. I mean, it'd be remiss if we didn't compliment. I mean, Forerunner is incredible of being students of culture and really looking at those macro trends and I think distributing their thoughts and, and bringing the, um, the consumer into their process. I mean, that was just, you know, something we admired greatly. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it was just a lot of, you know, small data points and ultimately creating a brand we wanted to launch. And I would also just just add to that. Um, so for people that aren't familiar with Hannah Gray, uh, we're a $50 million pre-seed fund. Uh, that feels really good to say. I haven't said that very often yet. Pre-seed generalists. So we say companies really redefining everyday experiences. So we're mainly participating in rounds between half a million and five and five million typically valuations under 20, but really looking to understand how the behavior of the end consumer is creating an area of opportunity. And so part of our thought process around building this fund was around our fund size. And so part of that was us thinking through venture is a team sport and we want to be collaborative with other funds and we want to also be able to have the capacity to lead rounds or co-lead rounds or follow, depending on what the entrepreneur needs. And so we were really thoughtful around what do we feel is the appropriate amount of capital for us to be able to do that at the pre-seed seed stage, while also still be, being able to syndicate opportunities with funds that we believe have really strategic networks or skill sets or domain expertise to help our founders really have the best possible bench around the table. So that also really played into how we thought about where we sit in the market we had a lot of LPs that said to us, come back to us when you're raising $200 million. And we said, thank you. We will never be raising $200 million, and that's okay. Um, have a lot of great friends we're happy to introduce you to. But, you know, we also really admire firms like Homebrew and like Founder Collective and Union Square Ventures that were, have been very disciplined around fund size intentionally. And 
that's really our plan too of where we want to sit in the market is we plan to raise a series of sub hundred million dollar funds because we do want to be able to stay collaborative and have a smaller fund size that we believe is appropriate for pre-seed. That's where Kate and I have been playing for over a decade. It's where we know how to help. It's what we love to do. And frankly, founders know that we've been in this job for so long that we now are able to back their second companies or their third companies, or they know to sell us that send us their friends or their former employees or their roommates or their siblings in some cases. And so we just believe that when sometimes firms will have the mental leap of raise a small $10 million proof of concept fund and then a $75 million fund and then a $200 million fund, where is that demonstration that you can do that? It's a totally different strategy, different allocations, different stages. And again, we we just, we know where we love to be. We're career venture capitalists. It's what we love to do. And we just have a lot of clarity on what that means for us and our position in the market. In many ways, it reminds me of the framework of product market fit in that you're finding exactly where you fit in to be most successful for both your founders and then, of course, your LPs. Speaking on the the latter, you started your fundraise right in the middle of a pandemic. In fact, I think it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And while we found that fundraising during the pandemic was incredibly efficient because you could take six to seven to eight Zoom calls per day with LPs. You also didn't have the in-person experience, which of course has some drawbacks. Tell us a little bit about the planning of the fundraise. And in particular, what type of LPs were you really focusing on? Uh, It was rough. You know, I think we all go back to that March 2020 and everyone had big dreams of what they wanted to do that year and everything got changed. Um, We certainly started going on a listening tour, I'd say, uh, right away. Um, because you know, we had, I would started my career at the beginning of a venture shift in 2009. So I had some perspective on what it looked like, but fundraising wasn't difficult for us at that point. And so, you know, being an emerging team and framing that was a challenge I hadn't yet gone through. And, you know, Jess was still at her corporate CVC. And so we were trying to essentially assess if this was the right time. And so very quickly, the uh, the conversation that spring was, so sorry, we have no time for new friends, new relationships right now. We would love to meet you, but we are inundated with our current portfolio's needs and um, and the managers that we've already backed, which makes complete sense. The listening tour, I'd say, got us in front of a number of people who had been through several market turns and being able to ask them I think very poignant questions around what we needed to be looking at and looking for as we tried to bring this product to market. Um, And we got a variant range of responses, Um, but I would say that it was also a saving grace to uh, discover Operator, now called Cool Water at that time. Um, We went through sort of, uh, I think, June through the summer, and it was so nice to be with a cohort of like-minded peers, individuals who are all trying to do the same thing across the uh, across the country. And all of a sudden, we had a lot of data points. You know, everyone was talking to uh, a number of LPs and being able to share our experiences and just kind of go to school on how we needed to build our product. I mean, it was just, uh, looking back, it was such a godsend for the time that we were in. And I think it really shaped our product in a different way had we not been admitted into the program. Yeah, and and I officially left my corporate VC um, fall 2020. So Kate pitched at the Raise conference for us. It was end of September 2020. 
or October 2020, around that time. Um, that's when I left my corporate VC and was officially like, we are here, we are fundraising. Um, but again, we had done a lot of just pre-marketing and groundwork and relationship building up until that point, which allowed us to do our first close pretty quickly in, in March. Um, and we had closed about about a third of the fund, uh, actually a little more than half the fund, um, going off of that $25 million target, which which was, you know, again, our minimal viable fund size at that moment in time, which just gave us a lot of momentum. We got very good at, Kate kind of mentioned this, about being very candid with LPs. We we recognize this is a really strange moment in time to be fundraising. And so we were we were able just to be really direct and transparent with our with our LPs and people we were talking to of, are you investing in new managers? How many new managers are you investing in this year? What does your process look like? Have you invested in a manager virtually? And depending on how their response is, there's no right or wrong answer. It's it's fine. This is a marathon, not a sprint. But you know, if we had an LP tell us that the bar is really high, never heard that, never heard that before, ever. <laughs> but if we had an LP say, you know, we're adding maybe one new manager in the next 18 months, that was great for us because it just framed our expectations around their likelihood to close and allowed us to shift the conversation more towards relationship building and them getting to know us and just, you know, tear down our deck. What do you like? What don't you like? And I think just being able to speak in a very human tone about this is who we are, how we're building, how we're thinking. Does this make sense for you? Um, How can we improve? Like, I think Kate and I have always just been very competitive students of the craft. And so we took every opportunity we had to try to refine our materials and our thinking to, to help us find that product market fit, which which was really important to us. Um, and so then we really ran it like a sales process. And I came from a corporate VC where I didn't have a single LP relationship ever. I mean, obviously Kate is the best kept secret in venture, which that goes without saying. I, I feel like she's not such a secret anymore, but you know, it's okay. But we have every single person in our network Really, we use a lot of metadata around how can we organize our network to be thoughtful about targeted outreach and connections. So whether that's a family office or or somebody to build a relationship for fun too, or where are they based, or how do we get connected to them, or when's the last time we contacted, like just getting really targeted to help us better organize our funnel to be able to continue to move the ball down down the field. And a lot of that was learnings that I took from women in VC, um, which I co-founded in 2015. We've grown to now 4,000 women globally uh, across over 200 cities, 65 countries. But it just, it it taught me the discipline around organizing networks and, and creating data-driven communities really well. And that's a learning and a playbook that we applied, not just to our fundraising process, but we do that for our LP onboarding. We do that for our founder community. We do that for our investment pipeline to essentially allow us to cut the data in a lot of different ways to be thoughtful about how we derive information. So I think that really helped us stay disciplined and organized to to get to our goal. One of the things that often comes up and a lot of our listeners are raising funds right now or raising, in many cases, their first fund. And you both have had significant venture experience, but really the first time actually going out and raising your own fund under the uh, the franchise name that of Hannah Gray. It is an iterative process that often comes with a very steep learning curve. And many times when I talk to managers, it's going into a fund, fundraise, it's almost these preconceived notions of what it's going to be like, what you're going to find. And then ultimately, the experience teaches you there's a lot of separation of fact from fiction. 
for the people that are listening right now, as you think about some that some of that fact versus fiction, were there certain takeaways that somebody listening here could use in terms of accelerating their fundraise based on the I would say the more, more more key learnings that you had over really the last, you know, 14 or 15 months. That listening tour that we kind of went on, I'd say in the beginning of the pandemic, just garnered a lot of insight. And then again, coupled with the conversations we had in the LPs that first year, 2020, as Jess said, you know, we iterated on the product daily. You know, I think our deck was being touched every single day, if not multiple times a day. Um, because we, again, we were dealing with an environment where the LPs didn't know how to talk to us through a computer. You know, that was another really big distinction of how do we build an emotional connection? How do we build, you know, a product essentially via Zoom in a way that they just, they had never sort of felt that connection before. So what were the ways in which we could I mean, I think at one point we did a virtual recording of me walking through the deck, which was very similar to kind of how we pitched it raised. And we were like, wow, that was effective. Like, I wonder if we could take it slowly and highlight the points that we, because you have a voiceover, you have your deck and then you have a voiceover, right? And things that you want to touch on. So that was something where I think it was a key point. If we couldn't get to someone who was a decision maker and it was sort of a gatekeeper first, we would share the virtual um, version of me going through the deck so that they could watch it on their own time. And I think that, you know, there's so much now available for emerging fund managers like that in small, like tricks and tips, you know, and you have to just figure out, everyone learns a different way and kind of absorbs information in a different way. So how do you package it up so it's digestible very quickly? And, And how are you memorable, you know? And so it's being as concise as possible in those very fleeting moments you have. Again, that listening tour, The data I received from a lot of, I would say, established managers was, I mean, I was asking them, like, how did you get in business? You know, what was the terms you took initially? How did you, who, who sort of gave you the leg up? Because I am, I was under the assumption that someone always helped someone else out in order to get them established there. And in some cases it was, it was, you know, a a previous firm or a partner or family office, but there was a lot of unique cases too. So just kind of asking those origin stories, I wanted to figure out how we could frame our own opportunity in the same time and space. Um, So I think, you know, Jessica is what she said is getting to know people on a human level and trying to peel back the layers of what those stories are. And, and I remember distinctly Brad Burnham shared with me from Union Square Ventures, how they got in business. And it actually took them 18 months um, to fundraise, which given how successful they've been, I'm, I'm kind of shocked by that. But there was a macro change in the market and they took advantage of that change and they were positioned very well at that moment. And so I think those small things, I was like, okay, how can I frame this macro change for us in this moment? You know, try to find the loopholes. And so I think you just have to put yourselves in those positions and take those learnings and shape them as your own because you kind of can't do the same thing that someone else did. It has to be your own. Otherwise, you wouldn't be differentiated. Kate and I are really fortunate in that we own everything 50-50. We actually didn't have an anchor. We did our fundraise brick by brick um, with family offices and high net worths. We do have institutional fund of funds. We have a foundation. We have strategics. Um, We're backed by an incredible group of LPs um, from Screen Door Partners and Twitter and Carta to Stagwell, which is my corporate VC. Just really fortunate to have a, a phenomenal group of investors behind us. But it was also very much like 
do or do not. There is no try. Like there was never a moment where we were ever like, of course, there's going to be a roller coaster. There are some days where like we're oversubscribed and there are some days where it's like, okay, got to like go backfill. It, it's just ebbs and flows like that. But it was, we were never, we were never not going to get where we wanted to be. Um, and that was something that I think Kate and I just kept each other motivated on constantly. And I would also say leaning on other emerging managers and in, in your network and being generous with your network. Um, you know, Kate and I are, are pretty active members of Operator, now called Coolwater. I'm just always going to call them Operator. So, sorry, Winter, if you're listening to this, it's just it's always going to be Operator. But also, you know, Transact Global, also Women in VC, also Emerging Manager Circles. And, you know, there's a lot of back channel that happens with other emerging managers about LPs. Are they... Are they deploying right now? Did they invest in you? What was their process like? And likewise, sharing what your experience was with them. Um, we've made over 100 introductions to LPs for our emerging manager friends because, again, we just track everything and are very data-driven because that's what helps us close the loop and know when we're successful with our founders or our co-investors or things like that. Um, so I would also say, you know, if you are an emerging manager that's that's raising, it's how can you get active as a participant in emerging manager communities? And like, there's very, there's not, there's a lot of us, but there's not that many of us <laughs> that are going through this journey when you look at it broadly. I mean, with women in VC in particular, you know, we put out some research fall 2020, only 5.6% of all firms are are women led. And from what we're tracking globally, obviously it's not everybody, but we're tracking a about 700, 750 women around the world. Obviously, that's not capturing everyone, but even if that's half, we're talking about less than 2,000 women in the world that are starting a venture capital firm. And so finding those pockets of like-minded people and leaning on them for support and knowledge sharing and elevating each other and celebrating each other's wins, it's just, it's the really good push that we all need to create this next generation of managers that we just believe there's so much talent and so many special people that have different perspectives and values to bring to founders and the customers they're looking to serve. You brought up earlier too USV taking 18 months. And while a lot of people are surprised, having been through it, I've seen so many phenomenal managers take a year or two years. And in fact, there was a stat at last year's Raise Conference where it showed that women-led firms actually took significantly longer than male-led counterpart firms, right? Which, of course, speaks to some of these biases and the fact that there's actually very few LPs that are, you know, women decision makers, which is another issue that we've been working on as well. But as you went through the fundraise itself and talking to both the institutionals as well as the family offices, if we could bifurcate for a second, did you find different things were appealing to different type of investors? So Let's put on one side the institutions, the other side the family offices. What takeaways that did you sort of learn from that process? I think absolutely. First, before we had a call with anyone uh, or even really an email, Jess and I would go into research mode. Like, what can we find out about this group or how, how are they connected to the ecosystem? Likes and dislikes, you know, as much as you can to kind of go into that initial conversation so that you're prepared. Um, obviously, let them talk right away and and let them reveal what their firm does and what they're interested in so you can qualify essentially how to pivot from there. We actually had an area, I would say, in our LPCRM that essentially trying to track like 
what part of our story resonates with them. And this was really helpful, you know, again on Zoom, because if Jessica was talking, I could watch the eyebrows go up or, you know, some sort of comment. And I think it's like small little bits of feedback like that, that you have to pay attention to and not just let go over your head. Because, you know, are they actually listening? Do they care? Do they have, you know, what is it about what we're presenting? Like, why did they take the meeting? And I actually think this was feedback I've gotten. And I wish we'd known this earlier, because I would have asked right out of the gate, why'd you take the call? You know, and they'll reveal to you right away what was interesting. And you can either decide to double click on that or try to expand their thinking from there. But I think it's very much Again, this is a relationship building business as much as it is finance. And so you really have to flex those muscles around. I mean, think about people who fundraise for nonprofits. It's probably one of the hardest jobs out there. And they have to do a lot to essentially tap into the emotional channels that are available to them. And so I think this is very akin to that as well. Kate is spot on when we, there's different parts of our story that would resonate with different people. I mean, you could see that. Some people are really impressed with Kate's acumen and the fact that she has the really unique skill set of starting firms from the ground up. And our relationship with our fund admin is an eight-year relationship. It is well-oiled. We we know how to build and operate a firm, which is a skill set that not a lot of emerging managers have. So we know some institutional LPs really appreciated that nuance. We know some LPs are really into Web3, and they're really interested in some of the relationships that I know have working with JPEG Morgan or Meta Collective or the NFT project we just did with women in VC. And so there's there's different parts of the story that you know resonate with different people. And so we would try to read the room and ask questions that just helped us get to what that node was and then really double down from there. And we were also very... I hope. I think we. We. I, I like to say that we're very maniacal about follow-ups and really targeted follow-ups. Um, so whether that was our data room, whether that was direct linking to our data room, um, whether it was a, an article that we referenced in the conversation, whatever it was, just like being very thoughtful and pinpointed around what's important in that relationship and building on it from there and, and tracking that, so we have a point of reference as. We get to know people, if not for this fund, for fund two, three, or four. Because again, this is this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And we want to find people that are going to be the right fit for us just as much as we're going to be the right fit for them. It's a great long-term mindset. And it does acknowledge the fact that when somebody's making an investment decision in a fund one, there's very little data points. And sometimes there needs to be more data points to unfold before somebody's willing to make an investment decision, particularly if you're an institutional LP. Speaking of about data points outside of performance, are there other interim KPIs that you're measuring to ensure that you are directionally at least executing on the plan that you put forth when you started the firm? I mean, this is something that we thought long and hard about. Again, Jess and I had this nice incubation period before we started Hannah Gray. So, and, and Jess used to have this phrase, I think I said it before, of well, when we have our fun, we're going to do things this way. Um, and I think that also helped us look back and say, you know, we're building our track record and building our, our data to essentially put together in this package to LPs. Shoot, I wish I had collected that data, you know, years ago, or I wish I had been better about tracking some things. And so we really took that to heart and started building a better framework to understand how we're going to be day one, you know, of this firm and 
for us, that just means we're tracking everything, you know, because we want to be able to look from, you know, quarter to quarter. And there's 13 weeks in every quarter. That's 13 opportunities to support your companies, to support your LP network. You kind of have to do all the things all the time. I know we sort of go into fundraising mode and not fundraising mode, but you have to manage all sides of, you know, the relationships at any given moment. And so you have to be prepared to support that. So I think how we learned in terms of KPIs is drawing back of, okay, if the goal is obviously to invest in successful companies that return the fund at multiple, how do we peel that back as to, is this is this actually a series of smaller wins that amount to large wins? And so how do we get to those small wins and really make sure that we're tracking as much of this as possible to be able to share that with our LP audience in a digestible way that they understand how we influenced and supported that business. And we think about everything through the lens of the Hannah Gray experience. What is the Hannah Gray experience? And for our portfolio founders, we have a whole onboarding process where, you know, they get an Airtable form, we get to know them, we get to know what their pain points are, we get to know what they want to accomplish and their KPIs, we get to know who are their dream investors, we get to know when their birthdays are. So again, just taking a little bit of that human component. And then that obviously is paired with a very lengthy notion doc of just really distilling our network in areas that we're able to support them and where how they should think of us for support. And then we also have a collaborative notion doc with them where we're constantly throwing in every single time some of our founders we talk to biweekly, some we talk to monthly, some we're just on text 24-7. It kind of depends what the founder needs and wants. But that notion doc is really our central document for all of our companies where we're tracking all the introductions that we made for them. They're saying, I need help with this research, or I'm really looking for introductions to Amazon and Google. And it just allows us to have this centralized infrastructure to be able to track and follow up where we're able to create value. So just within the last, gosh, just within the last couple months, and I know this because we just released our annual reporting. Don't worry, this is airing in May. We actually released our, our annual reporting in March. Um, but, you know, we made one introduction to a customer that resulted in over an or- their first bulk order of over 1,200 shoes. We made a few more introductions that resulted in three people being hired for a portfolio company. So we're tracking all these introductions because as we're connecting with our founders, we want to understand what that value creation was. And on the LP side, we also have our LPs go through an onboarding where they let us know, are you interested in direct opportunities? Are you interested in backing more funds? What stage are you invested in? What sectors are you interested in? But then also, how do you want, do you want to be involved in helping your companies? What industries do you have areas of expertise in? What boards do you sit on? And then again, we we want to know about you. Like, do you have kids? What are you interested in? And again, this just helps us be really thoughtful about our relationships. And it helps us be really organized when our founders need support because we have this huge spider web of incredible people and resources and networks that we're able to match really efficiently. And so whether it's an opportunity for a growth stage SPV down the road or whether it's a founder that's looking to make connections into schools, you know, we're very quickly able to organize our network to pinpoint who the right person is to make those connections. And so that's why when we talk about the Hannah Gray experience, it's really this robust data-driven community because we're being thoughtful about tracking and collecting data on what matters to people, whether that's our LPs or whether that's our founders, to help drive their business and our relationships forward. Yeah, a few times during this conversation, I've forgotten I'm talking to a venture firm and it, it feels very much like a service business that really wraps around this concept of net promoter score for everyone you work with. Yeah, I think that's a 
great observation. And I think that that's probably what venture will morph into, right? You know, I mean, I've, again, been in this industry for long enough to know uh, what it felt like when LPs were just concerned about their K-1s coming on time. And that was sort of like the one touch point annually. But I think the the venture market has expanded in an exceptional way that there's more opportunities to take learnings from other business models that can help, you know, improve on the model. Yeah. And first and foremost, you know, we're we're here to deliver exceptional financial returns for our LPs and to help our founders build monster businesses and help them achieve their goals and help them tackle huge markets. But to do that effectively, you have to be thoughtful about how you organize your network and be able to follow up and track all of that. So it's not just, oh, based on our conversation last week, I said I would do this for you. Like, no, how are you streamlining this and creating systems that are going to help you build from the ground up um, and then also help you onboard team members or venture partners or have them onboard people in a way that just keeps the relationship streamlined and organized so we can help measure how we're creating value and how we're helping to move the business forward. And that's what leads to a lot of our deal flow comes from our portfolio founders and our past portfolio founders. Two of the companies that we've invested in are founders that Kate backed their previous companies. And so that's also been part of the secret sauce of Hannah Gray is because we've we've been in, again, the same role of pre-seed investing for 10 years now, it just it helps people in the market know what they're buying and know what that Hannah Gray experience is. I, I love the fact that you say uh, the Hannah Gray experience because I do think a lot about venture is built on experiences. And what it does is it creates a bigger and bigger moat and creates this comparative advantage because even the next generation LPs that we work with, ultimately, it's yes, it, it is a financial return that they're looking for, but it's part of this broader experience of really learning together. And for your founders in particular, the better experience they have, of course, the better reputation the firm has, the better brand you have, the more referrals you get, and it becomes you know this flywheel effect that you get. And speaking of, as you then look at that experience, you're measuring all of these great things that you're doing for companies, which hopefully one day will result in those companies being large and therefore driving a great return to your LPs. And one thing that I found really unique about your model is in the past, a lot of venture firms, especially early stage, had shied away from selling early in terms of secondary liquidity. And you know, it's funny that we're talking now because we've probably seen in the private market some of the valuations maybe at their peak in 2019, 2020, and 21. And it, it does seem that at least today that it's obvious that people should be thinking about taking money off the table in rounds where it makes sense, where it can really drive a great economic return for the fund. Tell us a little bit more why this is such a key part of your strategy. And then how do you think about the different considerations? Because the old stigma was, are you really not supporting the founder versus doing what's right for your LPs? This is important, I think, for our story, largely because we think of this as a skill set that every manager will have to have um, in the venture space going forward. And I think it's unique to us because we're emerging managers and it's a little unexpected for us to have it so probably this early in our career. But I think it's also um, attributed to the fact that we've been pre-seed and seed managers for such a long time, which also translates into larger portfolios and the graduation rates and the failure rates that exist you know, at our s- juncture of initial investment to growth stage. So we already know that 
not all of our companies are going to make it to a viable exit. And so that also requires a lot more monitoring and feedback to LPs of how they're doing. You know, and so we take write-ups every quarter, write-ups and write-downs, and we certainly, you know, evaluate every business again at a follow-on and rewrite those valuations anew. So we're very conservative in that approach. And so I think this is really just something we'd like to speak about to say, look, it's a skill set we have. We know how to do it if we need to. Oftentimes in um, my experience, the companies, when we initially invest year one, pivot and and design their business very differently by year eight in some cases, not all, but, you know, there's certainly a number of macro forcing functions that can decide, you know, product market fit is over here now, um, or we're pivoting into this other business model that may not necessarily fit our Hannah Gray strategy and then what we've promised our LPs. And so it puts us in a tricky position of what do we do? Just sort of be held captive, essentially? Or is there a better way to essentially work with those founders on their new vision? And maybe there's new investors who want to come in and support that new vision. And we've already, you know, essentially, it's time for us to turn off all or half of our investment or a quarter of So I think this is also just an indication that public markets have really influenced private market behaviors. And there's an appetite from certainly the angel level to be able to take some money off the table because returns are great for them, you know, at that stage of when they enter. And it's also an indication of the types of different capital that are coming in at the growth stage that also have very different goals and appetites than first money in does. So we highlight this largely because, again, it's it's a way in which our acumen is distinguished at an emerging manager level, but it's also a, a nod to we expect this to become a more complex area of venture capital management, and we're prepared and we're ready to manage at that at that angle as well. We're excited to see where it comes out, but we're I have to underscore that we certainly are holding for traditional venture returns and have that expectation going in, but are prepared if it changes. It's also a difference of of being an investor versus being a fund manager. We now have eight case studies under our belt from past funds of divesting off of a position for for various reasons, right? But it's recognizing that venture is also, it's a chessboard and you have to be thoughtful about what is going to create the best gain and loss scenario for the fund that maybe is going to help you balance a gain out with a loss that could help neutralize a K1 or just because it's the company's right time to exit doesn't mean it's the right time for us as pre-seed investors to exit. And so it's also reading the tea leaves of the market and the dynamics of this round. Most of these growth rounds are having a primary and a secondary, and it's recognizing how much are we going to be diluted? Are we going to be buried under debt? Is there a liquidation preference? You know, Do we still agree and support the vision moving forward based on the risks and the uncertainties ahead, or is now the best time for us as a firm to exit and take a little bit off the table. Again, maybe not all of it, maybe half, but it's being thoughtful about how we can look at that chessboard again and figure out what is going to maximize the return and minimize the risk for our venture LPs that are looking for cash returns and strong performance. And I do think it's something that's going to be permanent in this market of all fund managers are going to have to start thinking about secondaries as a way to truly optimize and generate the best returns for their their LPs. And we've seen innovations, whether it be Carta, Forge, NASDAQ, private markets, that enable more of this to occur more seamlessly. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, you look at all these different dimensions that go into a consideration whether you sell. Is there a heuristic that you would recommend for any manager that's looking at 
secondaries as a way to generate liquidity? Um, I think that's a great perspective. You know, um, I think like any new skill set, it probably takes some time to learn. I, you know, again, eight transactions, not one has looked the same. They're all different. And I get this question from LPs of like, is there a number you need to hit or a multiple you need to hit in order to feel comfortable? And I'm like, no, like it's every single one is unique. And every single, you know, all the documents sort of underlining, you know, those transactions are unique too. So I think in this case, you know, Jess and I are fortunate that our fathers are both CPAs and we've been sort of steeped in this tax world since birth. Um, But I do think the tax tail wags the dog in some instances, and you have to think of those final outcome considerations uh, very much so at the forefront of some of these decision-making things. So if there's anything around that uh, secondary, and if you're looking to be very active in this strategy, I would just steep yourself in tax knowledge around how this works again, because I think that will end up being the thing that surprises you in the end. And oftentimes a great fund administrator or fund admin team can help educate you. But there's so many nuances to how companies exit and what those returns look like ultimately at the very final end after escrow has been paid out and all the dynamics. Um, and those rounds are getting very complicated, especially at the growth stage on the certain transactions. And they hold with you for years because it just does. So you have to, I would say, understand the final outcome and the complexities that lay there in order to try to make I would say, educated, anticipated decisions on divestitures. Um, It's just, it's super complex. And I mean, I consider, you know, my perspective and Jessica is like, we're students of this area and we're committed to learning more, but that's how we look at it. Yeah, and it, it's it's a great point. And I'm glad you brought up the tax because if, if not, there are things like QSBS that oh, yeah. play major roles in terms of ultimate return. So if you haven't if you haven't spent any time in QSBS, I just twelve oh two, love it. Exactly, recommend look into it because it it, it is a, a big driver of even more outsized returns. And it's a moving target right now. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, I, one of our LPs also was like thrilled that we cited the tax code and was like, "I love that you even know it's twelve oh two. Like, yeah, yeah, we do. And, it, and this is like Kate and I growing up uh, around the dinner table talking about tax codes because that yeah. was actually one of the early things that Kate and I bonded about. I was like, "Your dad's a CPA, my dad's a CPA," and it's just been ingrained in us to think about capital gains tax in short and long term. It's smart though, and it's smart, and it does impact you know your investors pretty dramatically. This has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate all of the authenticity of everything you've done, including how you've talked about the fundraise, which I think is incredibly helpful. But I want to leave with one final point, which is really around sort of this community that you've built. And Jess, you mentioned you know starting the the women in VC community in 2015. I realize that you just created an NFT. Tell us a little bit about that and how does that create even more moat for Hannah Gray? So we just had the the milestone of 4,000 members globally um, across 2,500 venture funds, um, 40 US states, 200 cities, 65 countries. Um, And it's something that we wanted to do something fun to celebrate, um, something different. And we've gotten very active in Web3. and, And what we really recognize is that to participate authentically and to connect with founders authentically in Web3, you also have to be a builder and you have to get your hands dirty and you have to understand how to build community and run a drop. And so 
part of me, I, I wanted to to learn more, <laughs> um, I would just say. But, you know, we're also just really passionate about helping more women raise bigger funds faster. Um, we're really passionate about financial literacy for women. And so we we partnered with a sister community called Crypto Lady Gang um, to curate 13 incredible women artists from around the world to really redefine what an investor looks like in 2022. And so our proceeds are going to the artists, they're going to a couple nonprofits of Women's Employed and Girls Inc., and then they're going to other career progression opportunities for women within our community. And so we wanted to do something to also give women an on-ramp. I've had so many conversations within the last 48 hours. Um, our public sale is going live March 30th, just to give everybody a timestamp whenever this ends up airing. Um, of helping women mint their first NFTs. And it is just this generational opportunity around Web3 and this co-creation that investors need to participate and they need to learn how to do these things. And it is really clunky right now. And you have to be almost given an excuse to have to do that. Um, so we just wanted to give all the women in our community an opportunity to mint something that's really personal to them while also celebrating the milestone of Women's History Month and, again, hitting 4,000 women. So it's helped us tremendously. Our, our deal flow access in Web3 now is, is just incredible. Um, and the last two investments that we made in Web3, we were the only non-crypto native fund that got an allocation, and, and both rounds were really heavily oversubscribed. And so it's just a testament to the fact that you know we want to participate and collaborate with those founders, but we also have skin in the game and know how to really help them grow their business and hit their milestones. That's a great milestone of, of 4,000. And, and as, as you said, on uh, March 30th was, was, the, was the drop of the NFT. I'm looking forward to seeing how that uh, progresses. And, and certainly, uh, again, I just wanted to thank you both for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And just kudos to you too, Samir. Just, we've been fans from the start and We've come a long way since our since our co-authoring of research around corporate VC and just so psyched for you and Allocate and everything you're bringing to the emerging managers. It's really fantastic. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Kate and Jessica. To learn more about them or Hannah Gray, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.